0: Be back. I was thinking about you as we were singing that last song, and as you guys grieve. And Sherry, your mom is here today, um, grieving the loss of your dad. And I, um, I hope that you'll be comforted that Jesus is making all things new, and death is not the way things are supposed to be. And death is an intruder and an ugly one. But one day, Jesus is going to put it all to an end. And I hope that you will not give up hope waiting for that day. Also wanted to just say happy Mother's Day to all of you who are mothers this morning. You are an incredible blessing to us, and uh, your trial and your toil in giving your lives away to us is an unbelievable gift. And to those of you who want to be mothers and who can't, those who um, have lost children, those who are estranged from your children, I pray that that God's comfort would be near you on a day that we celebrate motherhood appropriately so, but that you would not be uh, discounted and uh, that God would comfort you during this time. Um, Let me pray for us, and then I'll introduce our sermon. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we consider and reflect upon your word. I pray that wherever we're coming from, whether we have significant doubts about whether you could lift our burdens Whether we have significant skepticism over the fact that you exist at all, or whether we have been convinced long ago but are struggling to believe it in an existential way, in a daily way, Lord, I pray that you would be with us, that you would sit near to us, sit near to our pain, offer us comfort. Lord, I pray that we would understand that as humans, we are intrinsically imperfect, and that we have burdens, whether we pretend we do or not. And I pray that we would use this opportunity to come out of hiding this morning, that we would not be embarrassed about our burdens, but would seek you to lift them and to carry them and to allow those in this community to do us the honor of carrying our burdens for us. We pray that as we consider your word, that we would see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. This is our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 11. But to what will I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We're looking at the ABCs of N Town and taking our mission statement and each of the significant words, trying to attach some meaning to that and what it means to believe that we are a community, what it means to believe now we're looking at this idea of seeking, a community seeking to embody the historic Christian gospel in the city of Portland. I remember feeling something very unfamiliar. And I was going up to preach, something that I had done many, many times before, and I started to feel lightheaded. I started to feel a little bit dizzy and short of breath. And I remembered that I hadn't eaten breakfast that morning, so I ran to the snack table and I got a handful of grapes and a pastry and I scarfed it down and made it through the sermon and just forgot about it. The next week, I'm singing the hymn right before I'm to go up to preach, and same thing happens. Lightheaded, hyperventilating. I kind of made it through the sermon, barely. It was a terrible sermon. But all I could think about at the end was, I've got to go to sleep. I've got to find a bed. And then I began to think about the next sermon that was coming down the pike next week. My dad and my brother were in town, and they were helping me build a fort for our kids. And I could barely help them. I'd lazily hammer a few nails, and then I would go lay down in my bed, and they wouldn't see me for 30 or 40 minutes. And I'd lay down foggy-headed, confused, and tired all the time. But it was more than the tired that you feel when you've stayed up late studying for exams or you've missed a few nights of sleep. It was more than that physical tired. I was exhausted mentally, emotionally, physically, socially, and spiritually. And I called a doctor in our congregation, Uh, this was in Palo Alto, to make sure I wasn't dying. And uh, she said, very matter-of-factly, well, it sounds like you're having panic attacks. Well, this was hard to swallow because not only had I exhausted myself trying to be a competent pastor, counselor, preacher, parent, husband, but I was far too confident to have panic attacks. That was not me. I'm not one to have panic attacks. Well, this passage tells us that in the de- in the depths of who we are, we need not only physical rest, not just a better mattress or a long vacation, but we need spiritual restoration. We need spiritual rest. We need spiritual REM. He says, "Come to me all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest." For what? To what? Rest to your souls. And this is an invitation to diagnose our own spiritual condition, to diagnose the the state of our souls, the condition of our souls, and to ask Am I rest deprived? In the deep places of who I am, are the waters calm or are they raging? And Jesus looks out at the people of his day and he sees people in need of rest. And in the part we didn't read, he gives a list of a number of geographic places that Jesus is uh, saying this, and he's preaching this. And these are the places that he grew up. And so likely he's looking out at the people he knows, his friends and his neighbors. And he sees people who are in need of rest. And he sees people who are crushed under a religious system that's not providing soul care. It's not providing rest. It's wearing people out with a warped, vision of the spiritual life, and he compares these religious leaders to naughty little children on a playground. In the old days before, Minecraft or Dungeons and Dragons or life-affirming games like Grand Theft Auto, people played outside, and one of the things that kids did was they, they would play games where they emulated adults, and so they would apparently play games called Wedding and Funeral. Apparently, that was fun. And so, they were playing marriage and funeral, and Jesus looked at this crowd and said to the religious leaders, you were like spoiled little children arguing about which game to play. We said dance, and you decided to play funeral. We said wail, and you decided to play wedding. What is he talking about? Well, he mentions two people, John and himself. John is the cousin, the forerunner of Jesus, and he comes singing a dirge. He comes singing a funeral song, a funeral for the end of institutional, highfalutin religion, and he ministers out of the wilderness, out of the backcountry, and he's paving the way for Messiah. He's paving the way for the coming of the kingdom, and he says, so repent, get serious, turn back to God. And everyone said, nope, too serious. Too ascetic, too fanatical, no fun. He's a country bumpkin. In fact, they said he must have a demon. No one's as serious, no one's ascetic like John is. He must have a demon. Then Jesus comes, and he talks about the extraordinary welcome of God, this radical acceptance, and he goes to parties. He goes where the fun people are. He hangs around the immoral people, the party crowd. And they said, nope, too free, too loose, too dangerous. Jesus is a boozer. He's a glutton. That's not what God wants, clearly. What Jesus is saying is that they can't make up their minds what game they want to play, what song they want to sing, what vision of God they want to believe. But there's something more in the part that we skipped over that he actually announces judgment over these towns that he grew up in. And he calls them out by name. But Matthew tells us that he came to these towns announcing the kingdom of God and performing miracles among them, and he was rejected. And what he says, astoundingly, he says, it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. To religious people, he's telling them that judgment is going to be more palatable for Sodom, this sort of image of the worst town imaginable, then for you, religious, holy people. And if we read carefully, we realize what he's doing is not just this blanket condemnation of everyone who lives in these towns, but he is reserving judgment for a very specific group of people. He's distinguishing between the oppressed and the oppressor, and he's casting judgment upon a religious establishment that has yoked people to a toxic vision of God. The commoners and his friends and neighbors are weary, and they're burdened, and they're exhausted. Why? Because they have been yoked by their leaders to a toxic vision of God. If we read further in Matthew in chapter 23, we read this. They, that is the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, they tie up heavy, heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries, I love that word, wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, not just a blanket judgment. He's trying to liberate the people that are under this oppressive system, that are being led by this toxic vision of God, by the people that actually are the religious leaders shutting the door of the kingdom on the commoners. They have taken something good. That is the instruction of God, the law of God, which is meant to lead people into relationship with Him, which is meant to open up a new revolutionary way of living into the world. They've taken something that is good and they have twisted it and manipulated it to put themselves in places of honor and keep everyone else out. The wise and the learned had blocked the little people, the infants. In verse 25, and therefore these people, his friends, his neighbors, had no rest, no spiritual rest, no spiritual Ariyim. Now, what, it, what does this mean for us today? Because as I look around the room, I don't notice a lot of first century Jewish zealots. At least you don't look like them. And nor are you under the thumb of some militaristic religious vision, at least not that you know of. So, what is the application for us? Well, I would ask you to consider, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you burdened? Are you spiritually, emotionally, physically exhausted? Maybe, like these religious leaders, you've taken something in life that is intrinsically good, but you've twisted it and manipulated it and looked to it for something that it was never meant to provide. Maybe you really want to have your children respect you. You want to be a good parent. Or maybe as a child, you want your parents' approval. And these are good things. These are honorable things. But insofar as we make it the very hub of our happiness, it begins to rule us and drive us and burden us and exhaust us because we can never live up to those things in the way that we want to. Maybe you're my age, you're a little bit older, and you're hoping to put away enough money for retirement so that you're not a burden to your children. Maybe you're looking to advance to a certain income tier, and there's nothing wrong with these things. These are honorable things. But insofar as a figure becomes a non-negotiable in your life, it begins to rule you, and you begin to frantically watch your bank account, and you become easily distracted and destroyed by financial setback. Whatever it is, education, appearance, Reputation, job performance, maybe climbing the job ladder. There's a Princeton University professor named Johannes Hoschefer, and he has an institutional website like many professors do where he lists his CV, this curriculum vitae, which if you're not familiar with the academic world, this is where you kind of an expanded resume of all of your accomplishments and all of the articles that you've gotten published and who you studied under, and the jobs that you have held, and your educational credentials. And these things can run on for three or four or five pages. And it's just normal. But right below his link to his curriculum vitae, he lists his CV of failures. And he says at the top, Most of what I try fails, but these failures are often invisible, while the successes are visible. He then lists all the degree programs I did not get into, academic positions I did not receive, awards and scholarships that I did not win, research proposals which had been rejected, and finally, the fact that this darn CV of failures has received way more attention than my entire body of academic work. Maybe that's because he's saying something that everyone else wants to say but is afraid to. They're tired of keeping up their image. They're tired of constantly massaging and reordering their CV. Maybe they're weary of their social media profile because they know that it doesn't tell the whole story of who they are. And if someone looks through that and gets to know the real person, well, they're in for it. They're in for a surprise. And they see the the discord between those two things, and it causes them consternation. Maybe you're here this morning because God is giving you this space of reflection. He's given you a few moments to reflect upon your own spiritual condition and to wonder if maybe I've spent so much time protecting and promoting and polishing my metaphorical CV that it is exhausting me and I can't do it any longer. If you feel yoked to something, if you're tired, if you're exhausted, if you're burdened, then and only then... Can you examine Jesus' offer? And what is his offer? It's come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. Three things to notice as we examine this offer. First is that in order to do this, we must first do something very counterintuitive. We must take his yoke upon us. A yoke, you see, is is a work instrument. It seems like the last thing for someone who is overburdened that they would need. But Jesus is addressing, you see, life as it really is. He's not giving us this escapist vision that if you practice this spiritual path, then you will sort of escape the, the difficulties and the problems of this world. He doesn't make light of the trials of life. He's not carrying you out of life, but he's giving you a new way of carrying life itself. He's not offering escape, but he's offering you an equipping for dealing with life as it comes to you, to live in the world as it is with freedom, to understand a way that when you're burdened and when trials come, that they don't collapse you, that they don't destroy you, that there's a spiritual reservoir that you can utilize, that there's a yoke that is the right way to go about life, now his yoke is his teaching. It's his word. It's his instruction. It's his revolutionary way of approaching life. His beatitudes, his Sermon on the Mount that we sort of dipped into last last week, that are so counterintuitive and so countercultural and revolutionary. This is his yoke. Take his yoke upon you and live into the world as it is with a different way of prioritizing life, of ordering life, of thinking about your hope and your future. Take His yoke upon us by following His Word. That is not pondering from the outside or considering Jesus in some abstract or theoretical way, but the way to begin to carry life differently in a way that will lead to peace and will breathe new life and freedom into our daily affairs is not to be unyoked, but it is to be yoked. Differently. It is to be yoked by Jesus Himself. The way to true freedom, strangely, is a yoke of obedience. Secondly, He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Notice He says, learn from me, not about me. A yoke is not a sitting instrument. It's a work instrument. It's a walking instrument. He doesn't say, take my chair and learn from me, but take my yoke. In Jesus' day, most boys went into the profession of their parents, of their fathers, and they would learn as an apprentice. You see, there weren't any books that you could take off the wall and say, okay, here's how I become a carpenter. You didn't go to school. You went to your father's carpentry shop, and you watched him, and you learned how he did things. And you emulated him. You learned by practicing. You learned by living in the Father's presence. Now, contrast that with the Pharisees who did have books, who did know the languages. Well, they had scrolls. They were the most learned, the most studied. They knew the most Scripture, and yet they missed God when he showed up. Some of us can spend time, so many years and so much energy, learning systems and learning dogma and learning historical theology, only to become trapped inside those tight systems that don't make room for the messiness of life. And what they do, what we use them to do at least, is to promote our own righteousness rather than to enter into relationship with God. And like these religious leaders, we carve out very tiny spaces that fit us and allow us to stand and to relate to God, but they wall off everyone else. We lock people out. But instead of the learned, biblically literate Pharisees, it was who that responded to Jesus? It was the poor, it was the sinner, it was the illiterate, it was the tax collectors. And they learned about who Jesus was not by reading some book, but by walking with him, by emulating him, by taking his yoke, his word upon him. They habituated themselves to his word and to who Jesus was. The learned specialist rejected him. But ordinary folk, those who Jesus calls infants in the way that they think about their faith, they took hold of him. The Pharisees offered Torah, the law, obey, and you will be approved. But Jesus offers a different yoke. It was the yoke of mercy and love and grace and freedom and release from the captivity of the law. Release from the captivity of this toxic vision of God that they were living under that was so burdening them. And then three, finally, third, take my yoke upon you. Why? Why? What is the motivation? Because I, Jesus said, am gentle and humble in heart. The people were used to the rabbis and the teachers of the law being very stern and strict, and they were disciplined and they were disdainful towards other people who weren't as strict as them and towards the commoners. So imagine if you're 50 or above Professor Kingsbury from the paper chase, you remember him, Harvard Law, He was a very capable instructor, but people hated him because he was stern and disciplined. They learned the law, but it was through fear. If you're younger than 50, then maybe you can imagine Professor Fletcher from Whiplash, the drum teacher, constantly on them to perform, get better. And they did, but they did it out of fear and dread. The religious teachers of Jesus' day made people nervous and made people insecure. But the God of the universe, when he shows up, he says he is humble and gentle. He is seeking to lift your burdens, to instruct you through the offer of liberation. And what that means, friends, what we get comfort from is that God is patient with slow students that he withholds correction, that he teaches in relationship, and that he bends to the lowly. The image of the yoke, you see, isn't us wearing the yoke and Jesus in the cart, and he's telling us, go, and driving us and whipping us when we get out of line. Hurry up, do more, try harder. That's not the image. The image instead is of us on one side of the yoke and Jesus on the other. You see, it's take His yoke. He is under the yoke too. He is pulling us. He is directing us. He is beside us and we are connected to Him by this yoke. Therefore, we are all pulling together. Now concluding, as we consider this passage in light of our mission statement, why did I pick this one? What does it matter? What image should sink in? Well, I think two things. One is that we are yoked to Jesus, and He is on the move. We are yoked to Jesus, and He is busy ministering to our world. And so instead of driving us, He is pulling us with Him, and He wants us to participate in the work that He is doing. We are yoked to Jesus, and He is on the move, and so we should ask when people encounter in town... Do they find the humble heart of Jesus here? Do they find us to be gentle with slow students and slow learners? Do we bend and stoop in relationship to the weakest member? Do outsiders find that it's okay to be seeking, to not have it all together, that the church, like Jesus, is seeking to lift their burdens and to include the most unlikely people in this religious institution. And if you're an in-towner, are you able to see that we're not just a collection of individuals who happen to gather here on Sunday mornings, but that all of us are yoked to Jesus and what He is seeking to do in our city and through our church. That if you are yoked to Jesus, you are yoked to one another, and you're yoked to what He is doing through us as a community is that your vision for church? Is that why you're here this morning? And then, secondly, I think it's interesting that he uses children here in two different ways. The first is the spoiled brats, the Pharisees that can't decide which song they want God to play, how they want God to be. And then there's a second kind children, or as our translation says, infants. And when Jesus thinks about these infants, what happens? He breaks out into praise. He delights in them. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, the spoiled brats that can't decide what they want from me, but you have revealed them to little children, to infants. It's incredible. He's inviting dependence." He's inviting you to bring your imperfections to him, your humanity to him, and to say, "God, help me." He's saying that those who best understand him are the most radically needy, the most helpless, the most weak, the most vulnerable, the most like Penelope that I marched out this morning. The people that are closest to God are those that are close closest to her, that are like her, that are vulnerable and needy. So here's the rub is that not only does this church allow imperfect people, is that also we believe that it's only through your imperfection, through understanding what the Bible calls sin, that you will ever find healing and rest. And so the, the rub here, the pressure you may feel, is not to be perfect, but to be imperfect, to allow yourself to be seen to allow us to see through your virtual CV and to see the real you, to come as who you are, not expected to be, or not who even you may want yourself to be. We want InTown to be a place where you're uncomfortable with your perfection. We want InTown to be a place where you're uncomfortable with your claims to righteousness, with your claims to stand over anyone else that we're a place where people who are captive uh, both to their sin and irreligion and their perfection and their religion both find release. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us that release that we need, whether we are pursuing you by trying to do a better job, trying to be the perfect parent, the perfect follower of you, the perfect churchgoer, or whether we are running from you in rebellion and thumbing our nose at you. Lord, it all comes down to the same thing, and it is a heart that doesn't want to truly belong to you and a heart that doesn't want to fully give itself over to the gospel, and I pray that we would. I pray that we as a church would be softened by the gospel that tells us about our sin and yet also tells us about how you delight in us so that we would be emboldened and courageous. And Father, as we continue worshiping, as we wrap up this worship service, would you speak to us in our imperfection and in the broken places of who we are? Would you feed us and nurture us? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.